Chapter Four, Part B, of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova. Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode One, Childhood, Chapter Four B. I had scarcely been there a quarter of an hour when the noise made by the oars of a gondola striking the water heralded the prodigal Marquis. We all rose from our seats, and M. Querini hastened, somewhat blushing, to quit his place on the sofa. M. de Savintali, a man of middle age, who had travelled much, took a seat near Juliet, but not on the sofa, so she was compelled to turn around. It gave me the opportunity of seeing her full front while I had before only a side view of her face. After my introduction to Juliet, I paid her four or five visits, and I thought myself justified by the care I had given to the examination of her beauty, in saying in M. de Malipiero's drawer-room one evening, when my opinion about her was asked, that she could please only a glutton with depraved tastes, that she had neither the fascination of simple nature nor any knowledge of society, that she was deficient in well-bred, easy manners, as well as in striking talents, and that those were the qualities which a thorough gentleman liked to find in a woman. This opinion met the general approbation of his friends, but M. de Malipiero kindly whispered to me that Juliet would certainly be informed of the portrait I had drawn of her, and that she would become my sworn enemy. He had guessed rightly. I thought Juliet very singular, for she seldom spoke to me, and whenever she looked at me she made use of an eyeglass, or she contracted her eyelids, as if she wished to deny me the honour of seeing her eyes, which were beyond all dispute very beautiful. They were blue, wondrously large and full, and tinted with that unfathomable variegated iris which nature only gives to youth, and which generally disappears after having worked miracles when the owner reaches the shady side of forty. Frederick the Great preserved it until his death. Juliet was informed of the portrait I had given of her to M. de Malipiero's friends by the indiscreet pensioner Xavier Cortantini. One evening I called upon her with M. Manzoni, and she told him that a wonderful judge of beauty had found flaws in hers, but she took good care not to specify them. 
it was not difficult to make out that she was indirectly firing at me, and I prepared myself for the ostracism which I was expecting, but which, however, she kept in abeyance fully for an hour. At last, our conversation falling upon a concert given a few days before my Eimer, the actor, and in which his daughter, Thérèse, had taken a brilliant part, Juliette turned around to me and inquired what M. de Malipiero did for Thérèse. I said that he was educating her. He can well do it she answered, for he is a man of talent, but I should like to know what he can do with you, whatever he can. I am told that he thinks you rather stupid. As a matter of course, she had the laugh on her side, and I, confused, uncomfortable, and not knowing what to say, took leave after having cut a very sorry figure, and determined never again to darken her door. The next day, at dinner, the account of my adventure caused much amusement to the old senator. Throughout the summer I carried on a course of platonic love with my charming Angela at the house of her teacher of embroidery, but her extreme reserve excited me, and my love had almost become a torment to myself. With my ardent nature I required a mistress like Bettina, who knew how to satisfy my love without wearing it out. I still retained some feelings of purity, and I entertained the deepest veneration for Angela. She was, in my eyes, the very palladium of Sigrops. Still, very innocent, I felt some disinclination towards women, and I was simple enough to be jealous of even their husbands. Angela would not grant me the slightest favor, yet she was no flirt, but the fire beginning in me parched and withered me. The pathetic entreaties which I poured out of my heart had less effect on her than upon two young sisters, her companions and friends. Had I not concentrated every look of mine upon the heartless girl, I might have discovered that her friends excelled her in beauty and in feeling, but my prejudiced eyes saw no one but Angela. To every outpouring of my love she answered that she was quite ready to become my wife, and that such was to be the limit of my wishes. When she condescended to add that she suffered as much as I did myself, she thought she had bestowed upon me the greatest of favors. Such was the state of my mind when, in the first days of autumn, I received a letter from the Countess de Montréal, with an invitation to spend some time at her beautiful estate at Pazian. She expected many guests, and among them her own daughter, who had married a Venetian nobleman, and who had a great reputation for wit and beauty, although she had but one eye but it was so beautiful that it made up for the loss of the other. I accepted the invitation, and Pazian offering me a constant round of pleasures, it was easy enough for me to enjoy myself, and to forget for the time the rigors of the cruel Angela. 
I was given a pretty room on the ground floor, opening upon the gardens of Pazion, and I enjoyed its comforts without caring to know who my neighbors were. The morning after my arrival, at the very moment I awoke, my eyes were delighted with the sight of the charming creature who brought me my coffee. She was a very young girl, but as well formed as a young person of seventeen yet she had scarcely completed her fourteenth year the snow of her complexion her hair as dark as the raven's wing her black eyes beaming with fire and innocence her dress composed only of a chemise and a short petticoat which exposed a well-turned leg and the prettiest tiny foot every detail i gathered in one instant presented to my looks the most original and the most perfect beauty i had ever beheld i looked at her with the greatest pleasure and her eyes rested upon me as if we had been old acquaintances how did you find your bed she asked very comfortable i am sure you made it pray who are you I am Lucy, the daughter of the gatekeeper. I have neither brothers nor sisters, and I am fourteen years old. I am very glad you have no servant with you. I will be your little maid, and I am sure you will be pleased with me. Delighted at this beginning, I sat up in my bed, and she helped me to put on my dressing gown, saying a hundred things which I did not understand. I began to drink my coffee, quite amazed at her easy freedom, and struck with her beauty, to which she would have been impossible to remain indifferent. She had seated herself on my bed, giving no other apology for that liberty than the most delightful smile. I was still sipping my coffee when Lucy's parents came into my room. She did not move from her place on the bed, but she looked at them, appearing very proud of such a seat. The good people kindly scolded her, begged my forgiveness in her favor, and Lucy left the room to attend to her other duties. The moment she had gone, her father and mother began to praise their daughter. She is, they said, our only child, our darling pet, the hope of our old age. She loves and obeys us, and fears God. She is as clean as a new pin, and has but one fault. What is that? She is too young. That is a charming fault which time will mend. I was not long in ascertaining that they were living specimens of honesty, of truth, of homely virtues, and of real happiness. I was delighted at this discovery when Lucy returned as gay as a lark, prettily dressed, her hair done in a peculiar way of her own, and with well-fitting shoes. She dropped a simple curtsy before me, gave a couple of hearty kisses to both her parents, and jumped on her father's knees. I asked her to come and sit on my bed, but she answered that she could not take such a liberty now that she was dressed. The simplicity, artlessness, and innocence of her answer seemed to me very enchanting, and brought a smile on my lips. I examined her to see whether she was prettier in her new dress or in the morning's negligee, and I decided in favor of the latter. 
To speak the truth, Lucy was, I thought, superior in everything, not only to Angela, but even to Bettina. The hairdresser made his appearance, and the honest family left my room. When I was dressed, I went to meet the countess and her amiable daughter. The day passed off very pleasantly, as is generally the case in the country when you are amongst agreeable people. In the morning, the moment my eyes were opened, I rang the bell, and pretty Lucy came in, simple and natural as before, with her easy manners and wonderful remarks. Her candor, her innocence shone brilliantly all over her person. I could not conceive how, with her goodness, her virtue, and her intelligence, she could run the risk of exciting me by coming into my room alone, and with so much familiarity. I fancied that she would not attach much importance to certain slight liberties, and would not prove over-scrupulous, and with that idea I made up my mind to show her that I fully understood her. I felt no remorse of conscience on the score of her parents, who, in my estimation, were as careless as herself. I had no dread of being the first to give the alarm to her innocence, or to enlighten her mind with the gloomy light of malice. But, unwilling either to be the dupe of feeling or to act against it, I resolved to reconnoitre the ground." I extend a daring hand towards her person, and by an involuntary movement she withdraws, blushes, her cheerfulness disappears, and, turning her head aside as if she were in search of something, she waits until her agitation has subsided. The whole affair had not lasted one minute. She came back, abashed at the idea that she had proved herself rather knowing, and at the dread of having perhaps given a wrong interpretation to an action which might have been, on my part, perfectly innocent, or the result of politeness. Her natural laugh soon returned, and, having rapidly read in her mind all I have just described, I lost no time in restoring her confidence and judging that I would venture too much by active operations. I resolved to employ the following morning in a friendly chat, during which I could make her out better. In pursuance of that plan, the next morning, as we were talking, I told her that it was cold, but she would not feel it if she would lie down near me. "'Shall I disturb you?' she said. "'No, but I am thinking that if your mother happened to come in, she would be angry. "'Mother would not think of any harm. "'Come, then.' But, Lucy, do you know what danger you are exposing yourself to? Certainly I do, but you are a good, and what is more, you are a priest. Come, only lock the door. No, no, for people might think, I do not know what. She laid down close by me, and kept on her chatting, although I did not understand a word of what she said, for in that singular position, and unwilling to give way to my ardent desires, I remained as still as a log. Her confidence in her safety, confidence which was certainly not feigned, worked upon my feelings to such an extent that I would have been ashamed to take any advantage of it. At last she told me that, 
nine o'clock had struck and that if old count antonio found us as we were he would tease her with his jokes when i see that man she said i'm afraid and i run away saying these words she rose from the bed and left the room i remained motionless for a long while stupefied benumbed and mastered by the agitation of my excited senses as well as by my thoughts the next morning as i wished to keep calm i only let her sit down on my bed and the conversation i had with her proved without the shadow of a doubt that her parents had every reason to idolize her and that the easy freedom of her mind as well as of her behavior with me was entirely owing to her innocence and to her purity her artlessness her vivacity her eager curiosity and the bashful blushes which spread over her face whenever her innocent or jesting remarks caused me to laugh everything in fact convinced me that she was an angel destined to become the victim of the first libertine who would undertake to seduce her i felt sufficient control over my feelings to resist any attempt against her virtue which my conscience might afterwards reproach me with the mere thought of taking advantage of her innocence made me shudder and my self-esteem was a guarantee to her parents who abandoned her to me on the strength of my good opinion they entertained of me that lucy's honor was safe in my hands i thought i would have despised myself if i had betrayed the trust they reposed on me i there i therefore determined to conquer my feelings and with perfect confidence in the victory i made up my mind to wage war against myself and to be satisfied with her presence as the only reward of my heroic efforts i was not yet acquainted with the axiom that as long as the fighting lasts victory remains uncertain as i enjoyed her conversation much a natural instinct prompted me to tell her that she would afford me great pleasure if she could come earlier in the morning and even wake me up if i happened to be asleep adding in order to give more weight to my request that the less i slept the better i felt in health in this manner i contrived to spend three hours instead of two in her society although this cunning contrivance of mine did not prevent the hours flying at least in my opinion as swift as lightning her mother would often come in as we were talking and when the good woman found her sitting on my bed she would say nothing only wondering at my kindness lucie would then cover her with kisses and the kind old soul would entreat me to give her child lessons of goodness and to cultivate her mind but when she had left us lucie did not think herself more unrestrained and whether in or out of her mother's presence she was always the same without the slightest change if the society of this angelic child afforded me the sweetest delight it also caused me the most cruel suffering often very often when her face was close to my lips i felt the most ardent temptation to smother her with kisses and my blood was at fever heat when she wished that she had been a sister of mine but i kept sufficient command over myself to avoid the slightest contact 
before i was conscious that even one kiss would have been the spark would have been the spark which would have blown up all the edifice of my reserve every time she left me i remained astounded at my own victory but always eager to win fresh laurels i longed for the following morning panting for a renewal of the sweet yet very dangerous contest at the end of ten or twelve days i felt that there was no alternative but to put a stop to this state of things or to become a monster in my own eyes and i decided for the moral side of the question all the more easily that nothing ensured me success if i chose the second alternative the moment i placed her under the obligation to defend herself lucy would become a heroine and the door of my room being open i might have been exposed to shame and to a very useless repentance this rather frightened me yet to put an end to my torture i did not know what to decide i could no longer resist the effect made upon my senses by this beautiful girl who at the break of day and and scarcely dressed ran gaily into my room came to my bed inquiring how i had slept bent familiarly her head towards me and so to speak dropped her words on my lips in those dangerous moments i would turn my head aside but in her innocence she would reproach me for being afraid when she felt herself so safe and if i answer that i could not possibly fear a child she would reply that a difference of two years was of no account standing at bay exhausted conscious that every instant increased the ardour which was devouring me i resolved to entreat from herself the discontinuance of her visits and this resolution appeared to me sublime and infallible but having postponed its execution until the following morning i passed a dreadful night tortured by the image of lucy and by the idea that i would see her in the morning for the last time i fancied that lucy would not only grant my prayer but that she would conceive for me the highest esteem in the morning it was barely daylight lucy beaming radiant with beauty a happy smile brightening her pretty mouth and her splendid hair in the most fascinating disorder bursts into my room and rushes with open arms towards my bed but when she sees my pale dejected and unhappy countenance she stops short and her beautiful face taking an expression of sadness and anxiety what ails you she asks with deep sympathy i have had no sleep through the night and why because i have made up my mind to impart to you a project which although fraught with misery to myself will at least secure me your esteem but if your project is to ensure my esteem it ought to make you very cheerful only tell me reverend sir why after calling me thou yesterday you treat me to-day respectfully like a lady what have i done i will get your coffee and you must tell me everything after you have drunk it i long to hear you she goes and returns i drink the coffee and seeing that my countenance remains grave she tries to enliven me contrives to make me smile and claps her hands for joy 
After putting everything in order, she closes the door because the wind is high, and in her anxiety not to lose one word of what I have to say, she entreats artlessly a little place near me. I cannot refuse her, for I feel almost lifeless. I then begin a faithful recital of the fearful state in which her beauty has thrown me, and a vivid picture of all the suffering I have experienced in trying to master my ardent wish to give her some proof of my love. I explain to her that, unable to endure such torture any longer, I see no other safety but in entreating her not to see me any more. The importance of the subject, the truth of my love, my wish to present my expedient in the light of her heroic effort of a deep and virtuous passion, lend me a peculiar eloquence. I endeavor above all to make her realize the fearful consequences which might follow a course different to the one I was proposing, and how miserable we might be. At the close of my long discourse, Lucy, seeing my eyes wet with tears, throws off the bedclothes to wipe them, without thinking that in so doing she uncovers two globes, the beauty of which might have caused the wreck of the most experienced pilot. After a short silence, the charming child tells me that my tears make her very unhappy, and that she had never supposed that she could cause them. All that you have just told me, she added, proves the sincerity of your great love for me, but I cannot imagine why you should be in such a, th a dread of a feeling which affords me the most intense pleasure. You wish to banish me from your presence because you stand in fear of your love, but what would you do if you hated me? Am I guilty because I have pleased you? If it is a crime to have won your affection, I can assure you that I did not think I was committing a criminal action, and therefore you cannot conscientiously punish me. Yet I cannot conceal the truth. I am very happy to be loved by you. As for the danger we run, when we love danger which I can understand, we can set it at defiance. If we choose, and I wonder at my not fearing it, ignorant as I am, while you, a learned man, think it so terrible. I am astonished that love, which is not a disease, should have made you ill, and that it should have exactly the opposite effect upon me. Is it possible that I am mistaken, and that my feelings toward you should not be love? You saw me very cheerful when I came in this morning. It is because I have been dreaming all night, but my dreams did not keep me awake. Only several times I woke up to ascertain whether my dream was true, for I thought I was near you, and every time finding that it was not so, I quickly went to sleep again in the hope of continuing my happy dream, and every time I succeeded. After such a night, was it not natural for me to be cheerful this morning? My dear Abbe, if love is a torment for you, I am very sorry, but would it be possible for you to live without love? I will do anything you order me to do, but, even if your cure depended upon it, I would not cease to love you, for that would be impossible. 
yet if to heal your sufferings it should be necessary for you to love me no more you must do your utmost to succeed for i would much rather see you alive without love than dead for having loved too much only try to find some other plan for the one you have proposed makes me very miserable think of it there may be some other way which will be less painful suggest one more practicable and depend upon lucy's obedience these words so true so artless so innocent made me realize the immense superiority of nature's eloquence over that of philosophical intellect for the first time i folded this angelic being in my arms exclaiming yes dearest lucy yes thou hast it in thy power to afford the sweetest relief to my devouring pain abandon to my ardent kisses thy divine lips which have just assured me of thy love an hour passed in the most delightful silence which nothing interrupted except these words murmured now and then by lucy o oh god is it true is it not a dream yet i respected her innocence and the more readily that she abandoned herself entirely and without the slightest resistance at last extricating herself gently from my arms she said with some uneasiness my heart begins to speak i must go and she instantly rose having somewhat rearranged her dress she sat down and her mother coming in at that moment complimented me upon my good looks and my bright countenance and told lucy to dress herself to attend mass lucy came back an hour later and expressed her joy and her pride at the wonderful cure she thought she had performed upon me for the healthy appearance i was then showing convinced her of my love much better than the pitiful state in which she had found me in the morning if your complete happiness she said rests in my power be happy there is nothing that i can refuse you the moment she left me still wavering between happiness and fear i understood that i was standing on the very brink of the abyss and that nothing but a most extraordinary determination would prevent me from falling headlong into it i remained at pasean until the end of september and the last eleven nights of my stay were passed in the undisturbed possession of lucy who secure in her mother's profound sleep came to my room to enjoy in my arms the most delicious hours the burning ardor of my love was increased by the abstinence to which i condemned myself although lucy did everything in her power to make me break through my determination she could not fully enjoy the sweetness of the forbidden fruit unless i plucked it without reserve and the effect produced by our constantly lying in each other's arms was too strong for a young girl to resist she tried everything she could to deceive me and to make me believe that i had already and in reality gathered the whole flower but bettina's lessons had been too efficient to allow me to go on a wrong scent and i reached the end of my stay without yielding entirely to the temptation she so fondly threw in my way i promised her to return in the spring 
our farewell was tender and very sad and i left her in a state of mind and of body which must have been the cause of her misfortunes which twenty years after i had occasion to reproach myself with in holland and which will ever remain upon my conscience after a few days after my return to venice i had fallen back into all my old habits and resumed my courtship of angela in the hope that i would obtain from her at least as much as lucy had granted to me a certain dread which to-day i can no longer trace in my nature a sort of terror of the consequences which might have a blighting influence upon my future prevented me from giving myself up to complete enjoyment i do not know whether i have ever been a truly honest man but i am fully aware that the feelings i fostered in my youth were by far more upright than those i have as i lived on force upon myself to accept a wicked philosophy throws down too many of these barriers which we call prejudices the two sisters who were sharing Angela's embroidery lessons were her intimate friends and the confidants of all her secrets. I made their acquaintance and found that they disapproved of her extreme reserve towards me. As I usually saw them with Angela and knew their intimacy with her, I would, when I happened to meet them alone, tell them all my sorrows, and thinking only of my cruel sweetheart, I never was conceited enough to propose that these young girls might fall in love with me, but I often ventured to speak to them with all the blazing inspiration which was burning in me, a liberty I would not have dared to take in the presence of her whom I loved. True love always begets reserve. We feared to be accused of exaggeration if we should give utterance to feelings inspired by passion, and the modest lover, in his dread of saying too much, very often says too little. The teacher of embroidery, an old bigot, who at first appeared not to mind the attachment I skewed for Angela, got tired at last of my too frequent visits, and mentioned them to the abbe, the uncle of my fair lady. He told me kindly one day that I ought not to call at that house so often, as my constant visits might be wrongly construed and prove detrimental to the reputation of his niece. His words fell upon me like a thunderbolt, but I mastered my feelings sufficiently to leave him without incurring any suspicion, and I promised to follow his good advice." three or four days afterwards i paid a visit to the teacher of embroidery and to make her believe that my visit was only intended for her i did not stop one instant near the young girls yet i contrived to slip in the hand of the eldest of the two sisters a note enclosing another for my dear angela in which i explained why i had been compelled to discontinue my visits entreating her to devise some means by which i could enjoy the happiness of seeing her and of conversing with her in my note to nanette i only begged her to give my letter to her friend adding that I would see them again the day after the morrow, and that I trusted to her to find an opportunity for delivering me the answer. 
She managed it all very cleverly, and when I renewed my visit two days afterwards, she gave me a letter without attracting the attention of anyone. Nanette's letter enclosed a very short note from Angela, who, disliking letter-writing, merely advised me to follow, if I could, the plan proposed by her friend. Here is the copy of the letter written by Nanette, which I have always kept, as well as all other letters which I give in these memoirs. There is nothing in the world, reverend sir, that I would not readily do for my friend. She visits at our house every holiday, has supper with us, and sleeps under our roof. I will suggest the best way for you to make the acquaintance of Madame Orio, our aunt. But, if you obtain an introduction to her, you must be very careful not to let her suspect your preference for Angela, for our aunt would certainly object to her house being made a place of rendezvous to facilitate your interviews with a stranger to her family. Now, for the plan I propose, and in the execution of which I will give you every assistance in my power. Madame Orio, although a woman of good station in life, is not wealthy, and she wishes to have her name entered on the list of noble widows, who receive the bounties bestowed by the confraternity of the Holy Sacrament, of which M. de Malipiero is president. Last Sunday, Angela mentioned that you are in the good graces of that nobleman, and that the best way to obtain his patronage would be to ask you to entreat it in her behalf. The foolish girl added that you were smitten with me, that all your visits to our mistress of embroidery were made for my special benefit, and for the sake of entertaining me, and that I would find it very easy task to interest you in her favor. My aunt answered that, as you are a priest, there was no fear of any harm, and she told me to write to you with an invitation to call on her. I refused. The procurator Rosa, who is a great favorite of my aunt's, was present. He approved of my refusal, saying that the letter ought to be written by her and not by me, that it was for my aunt to beg the honor of your visit on business of real importance, and that if there was any truth in the report of your love for me, you would not fail to come. My aunt, by his advice, has therefore written the letter which you will find at your house." if you wish to meet angela postpone your visit to us until next sunday should you succeed in obtaining m de malipiero's good will in favor of my aunt you will become the pet of the household but you must forgive me if i appear to treat you with coolness for i have said that i do not like you i would advise you to make love to my aunt who is sixty years of age M. Rosa will not be jealous, and you will become dear to everyone. For my part, I will manage for you an opportunity for some private conversation with Angela, and I will do anything to convince you of my friendship. Adieu. This plan appeared to me very well conceived, and, having the same evening received Madame Orio's letter, I called upon her on the following day, Sunday. 
i was welcomed in a very friendly manner and the lady entreating me to exert in her behalf my influence with m de malipiero entrusted me with all the papers which i might require to succeed i undertook to do my utmost and i took care to address only a few words to angela but i directed all my gallant attentions to nanette who treated me as coolly as could be finally i won the friendship of the old procurator rosa who in after years was of some service to me i had so much at stake in the success of madame orio's petition that i thought of nothing else and knowing all the power of the beautiful therese eimer over our amorous senator who would be but too happy to please her in anything i determined to call upon her the next day and i went straight to her room without being announced i found her alone with the physician doro who feigning to be on a professional visit wrote a prescription felt her purse and went off this doro was suspected of being in love with therese m de malipiero who was jealous had forbidden therese to receive his visits and she had promised to obey him she knew that i was acquainted with those circumstances and my presence was evidently unpleasant to her for she had certainly no wish that the old man should hear how she kept her promise i thought that no better opportunity could be found of obtaining from her everything i wished i told her in a few words the object of my visit and i took care to add that she could rely upon my discretion and that i would not for the world do her any injury therese grateful for this assurance answered that she rejoiced at finding an occasion to oblige me and asking me to give her the papers of my protege she shewed me the certificates and testimonials of another lady in favour of whom she had undertaken to speak and whom she said she would sacrifice to the person in whose behalf i felt interested she kept her word for the very next day she placed in my hands the brevet signed by his excellency as president of the confraternity for the present and with the expectation of further favours madame orio's name was put down to share the bounties which were distributed twice a year nanette and her sister martin were the orphan daughters of a sister of madame orio all the fortune of the good lady consisted in the house which was her dwelling the first floor being let and in a pension given to her by her brother member of the council of ten she lived alone with her two charming nieces the eldest sixteen and the youngest fifteen years of age she kept no servant and only employed an old woman who for one crown a month fetched water and did the rough work her only friend was the procurator rosa he had like her reached his sixtieth year and expected to marry her as soon as she should become a widower the two sisters slept together on the third floor in a large bed which was likewise shared by angela every sunday 
As soon as I found myself in possession of the deed for Madame Orio, I hastened to pay a visit to the mistress of embroidery, in order to find an opportunity of acquainting Nanette with my success, and in a short note which I prepared, I informed her that in two days I would call to give the brevet to Madame Orio, and I begged her earnestly not to forget her promise to contrive a private interview with my dear Angela. When I arrived on the appointed day at Madame Orio's house, Nanette, who had watched for my coming, dexterously conveyed to my hand a billet, requesting me to find a moment to read it before leaving the house. I found Madame Orio, Angela, the old procurator, and Martin in the room. Longing to read the note, I refused the seat offered to me, and presenting to Madame Orio the deed she had so long desired, I asked, as my only reward, the pleasure of kissing her hand, giving her to understand that I wanted to leave the room immediately. "'Oh, my dear Abbe,' said the lady, "'you shall have a kiss, but not on my hand, and no one can object to it, as I am thirty years older than you. She might have said forty-five without much astray. I gave her two kisses, which evidently satisfy her, for she desired me to perform the same ceremony with her nieces, but they both ran away, and Angela alone stood the brunt of my hardihood. After this the widow asked me to sit down. I cannot, madame. Why, I beg, I have, I understand, Nanette, show the way. Dear aunt, excuse me. Well, then, Martin. Oh, dear aunt, why do you not insist upon my sister obeying your orders? Alas, madame, these young ladies are quite right. Allow me to retire. No, my dear abbe, my nieces are very foolish. And Rosa, I am sure, will kindly. The good procurator takes me affectionately by the hand, and leads me to the third story where he leaves me. The moment I am alone, I open my letter, and I read the following. My aunt will invite you to supper. Do not accept. Go away as soon as we sit down to the table, and Martin will escort you as far as the street door. But do not leave the house. When the street door is closed again, every one thinking you are gone, go upstairs in the dark as far as the third floor, where you must wait for us. We will come up the moment Ambrosa has left the house, and our aunt has gone to bed. Angela will be at liberty to grant you throughout the night a tete-a-tete, which I entrust will prove a happy one. Oh, what joy, what gratitude for the lucky chance which allowed me to read this letter on the very spot where I was to expect the dear object of my love. Certain of finding my way without the slightest difficulty, I returned to Madame Orio's sitting-room, overwhelmed with happiness. End of chapter 4b